Hi everyone, just a quick message before we start today's episode. The generosity of our members and friends is life-changing for young investigators, lung patients, and patient families. Donations made to the ATS will help to support our mission to fund emerging investigators in cutting-edge research, sustain education and public health initiatives, and reduce health disparities to advance worldwide respiratory health. If you would like to make a contribution to the ATS to help support our mission, please visit thoracic.org go slash donate. That's thoracic.org go slash donate. This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Welcome to the Scholarly Podcast. My name is Stephanie Maximus, and today I'll be discussing this great paper from ATS Scholar called Procedural Training of Pulmonary and Critical Care Fellows Varies by Procedural Risk and Volume. And today I'm sitting down with Dr. Jeremy Richards, um, who is an assistant professor of medicine at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and director of the Medical Education Research Laboratory at the Shapiro Institute of Education also at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and also affiliated with Harvard um, Medical School. Um, so thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's great to be here with you, Stephanie. Yeah, so, um, so I'm really excited to talk about this paper with you um, because it, uh, I think, highlights so many issues around how we teach procedures to fellows um, and especially highlights this uh, elusive issue of how do we specifically teach what you refer to as high risk, low volume procedures. Um, so can you say a little bit more about where the idea to even like pursue this question came from and like what experiences you and your colleagues had that sparked interest in this topic? Yeah, absolutely. And I like that uh, assessment that you provided. It's an elusive issue in medical education for our fellows and how to get them to uh, experience and, and become experienced in performing these high risk, low volume procedures. The, the impetus for this study really came from our senior author, Nitin Seem, uh, who trains fellows uh, through his program um, at the National Institute of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, and Nira Shaw, one of our co-authors. Um, who identified this as a real problem in medical education for pulmonary and critical care fellows, critical care fellows specifically, uh, and came up with the idea for creating and then disseminating and assessing this national survey of program directors in pulmonary and critical care fellowship programs to see what people were doing in their different programs with regard to training our critical care fellows of, on high-risk, low-volume procedures. Yeah, can you say a little bit more about like what you actually surveyed, what you were, what the information was that you were trying to tease out, who you got in touch with? Absolutely. So we put together, uh, all of us, the co-authors put together this survey. Uh, it went through multiple rounds of revision. We iteratively uh, uh, revised and, and tried to optimize the survey and then did some pilot testing um, with representative respondents, with fellows, to try to see how they interpret, excuse me, with program directors, not fellows, to see how they tried to interpret um, the survey uh, questions and, and how they answered it to see if we had some discriminative capacity amongst the survey items. And from there, um, we were lucky enough to get to work with the APCCMPD uh, and send out the survey through their list serve uh, with a couple of reminders to program directors of pulmonary critical care fellowship programs 
to really get a sense of you know, what people were doing uh, to try to train their fellows with regard to procedural teaching. And the survey was designed uh, to include questions about relatively low risk procedures, uh, things that we think of as pretty common in pulmonary critical care, nasogastric tubes, arterial lines, central lines, bronchoscopy, and then also fit in there some of those high risk, low volume procedures, things that we don't do that frequently, pericardiocentesis, uh, Blakemore or Minnesota tube placement, um, et cetera. And so we wanted to look at all procedural teaching or uh, representative procedural teaching for low risk, uh, high volume and high risk, low volume procedures across the country. Uh, we were lucky enough to get a good response from different geographic areas uh, to give us a broad sense across the nation of what program directors uh, reported as their training for these different procedures for their pulmonary uh, and or critical care medicine fellows. Yeah, so interesting. And how did um, how did you guys decide or what, what sort of led you to ask uh, program directors specifically as opposed to surveying fellows? That's a great question. And um, I will say uh, you've inspired me and, and us to think about that uh, other side of the coin. What, what do fellows perceive as the training opportunities for themselves? Uh, but for this study, we were really interested in, you know, what does the leadership of the fellowship programs um, perceive and describe and report as what they're providing for their pulmonary and or critical care fellows uh, with regard to procedural teaching. So um, we, we focused on the people that were setting the curricula, the people that were describing um, how the fellows were trained and, and the leadership in these different programs at least for this preliminary assessment. But again, you ask a great question. And I think that uh, getting the perspective of what the trainees, what the fellows perceive that their training is would be a fascinating comparison with regard to what the program directors describe uh, providing for their trainees. Right, what, what learners actually believe that they're learning versus what we as educators are, believe that we're teaching sometimes don't exactly line up for sure. 100%, yes, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a super great question. For this uh, specific study, again, just to be somewhat redundant, we were looking at what the, the educators were saying that they are doing for the fellows in, with regard to procedural teaching. Yeah, sort of what the official official curricula of various fellowships across the country include as far as procedural teaching. Yeah, and you're uh, questioning the contrast between what's perceived by the learners and what's reported by the educators. Uh, might be a nice contrast between the stated curricula, the official curricula versus the hidden or the actual curricula uh, that's manifest in training. That's mm -hmm. great. Mm -hmm. so, um, so just to drill down a little bit, you guys talked about high risk, low volume as one category versus low risk, high volume procedures. And I just wanted to ask about the word volume like is it the volume that actually translates into the perceived risk of the procedure or is it something that you think of as intrinsic to the procedure itself how did you as a group of authors sort of navigate or come to consensus on that that's a great question and it gets into the methodology of the survey study itself so the there's no defined terminology out there in the literature of high risk, low volume or low risk, high volume procedures. We created that for this study and we created it um, in a similar uh, method to many other studies. Our, our author group uh, went through a multiple rounds of review of different procedures and categorized them into what we, as our, our consensus group, 
described as being high risk procedures and low risk procedures. And from there, the, the question about the volume or the frequency with which fellows uh, or critical care providers in general perform these procedure, procedures fell out pretty organically. Um, because if you think about your own practice, uh, for, for you, Stephanie, for me, Jeremy, or for the audience that's listening, the number of times that we do things like thoracentesis or flexible bronchoscopy, central line placement or arterial line placement, it's pretty common in our critical care experiences uh, or by extension, our pulmonary medicine experiences in general. And so it's a, it's a, those are relatively low risk procedures. Of course, they have risk. They're relatively high volume in our clinical practice. And so we felt comfortable as an author group after reviewing the procedures uh, numerous times and going through the, the list of different um, procedures in our survey, categorizing those procedures as such. Reciprocally, things like bronchial blocker placement or Blakemore tube placement, uh, cricothyroidotomy or pericardiocentesis, those are procedures that usually are performed in much higher risk settings and have higher morbidity and risk associated with them. At least our author group felt that way from our uh, multidisciplinary and, and geographically diverse perspectives. And then also the frequency which we, with which we do those procedures, the volume of those procedures is markedly decreased as compared to the low risk, high volume group. So it was a intentional methodology in terms of sorting these different procedures uh, to group them into these two different categories. We thought that it was a useful description to add to the literature in terms of describing procedures as such, because just the umbrella term of, you know, we do procedures as pulmonologists and or intensivists didn't seem to adequately describe the characteristics of, the risks of, and the associations with the different procedures that we do. Right, not all procedures are created equal, right? That's exactly, that's perfect. Uh, that's a great summary, yes. Yeah, so were there any gray areas or controversies about what, like some procedures that should be like classified as low risk versus high risk? Um, it was pretty uh, clean between the procedures that we included uh, in the survey study. Um, there were uh, procedures that were not included in the survey study, um, you know, such as uh, intubation, um, which really varies between uh, different training programs. Uh, there's geographic variation between the frequency with which uh, pulmonary and or critical care fellows may uh, perform intubation. And so um, we actually kept that out of this specific study uh, to focus more on invasive procedures that we could crisply and clearly differentiate um, as high risk, low volume or low volume, uh, high risk procedures. Yeah, did um, did like PA catheter placement or transvenous catheter placement fit, come into the discussion at all? Yeah, those are great questions as well. Those were discussed and because they kind of fell into this gray area where intubation resides, um, the idea of PA catheter placement, which used to be so frequent as uh, you know, um, and is now not such a, a common component of critical care. Uh, but some programs, um, you know, still their fellows have lots of opportunities to do PA catheter placement uh, because of, uh, um, you know, a heavy pulmonary hypertension program or other considerations. Um, didn't, uh, we decided that because of the variability that we perceived, uh, that our author group perceived across programs, not to include that because that they didn't crisply fall into that high risk, low volume or low risk, uh, high volume procedures that we uh, talked about. Yeah. What about surgical chest tubes? Did those That's another one. Yes. So that did come up in our preliminary discussions. Um, wide variability amongst our author group. Uh, again, it was a multidisciplinary author group, including 
people with uh, critical care backgrounds uh, and then complementary pulmonary training, emergency medicine training. Um, and so the decision was that there was too much, there was too much perceived variability out there in training programs uh, for pulmonary and or critical care to really crisply uh, differentiate that into low risk, high volume versus high risk, low volume. Yeah, it's just so interesting when you think about our specialty, how diverse the um, the expectations are of the work that we do and how diverse the training experiences are and how the training training experience one may get as a fellow may not match up with the future career expectations, depending on where you as a as an independent attending or practitioner where you land. Um, yeah, it's a, I didn't mean to interject, but it's a great point. And I think that that informed our preliminary discussions about how to kind of bucket these different procedures and how to exclude certain procedures um, that you know, didn't fit what we perceived as the definitions of high risk, low volume versus low risk, high volume. Your point's well taken. Um, you know, having worked at a couple of different academic medical centers over the course of my career, the expectations as a critical care attending can vary significantly. In one medical center uh, at which I worked, um, we don't place chest tubes. At another one where I worked, uh, you were expected to place chest tubes. And so that informed our discussion about whether we should include surgical chest tubes as part of this discussion or um, you know, leave that on the side because there's such variability. We chose the latter route, obviously. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of talking about bronchoscopy, because that, you know, does come up several times in the in the discussion and in your results, um, did you talk about or did you distinguish between native airway spontaneously breathing patient bronchoscopy versus the intubated already sedated bronchoscopy? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And I'll admit we, we didn't. Um, we didn't make that distinction in the survey. Um, and that came up briefly in the discussion and the decision was bronchoscopy is bronchoscopy uh, for the purposes of this uh, study and that pulmonary critical care uh, fellows in particular do a lot of bronchoscopies on either native and or intubated patients. So um, we didn't distinguish that differentiation between uh, uh, the different types of bronchoscopy for our survey. No problem. You can't do everything all in one survey. <laughs> Your survey would have been 100 pages long. It is already getting a little lengthy. So. Yeah, yeah. So tell me about the main results. Like, what do you want our listeners to take away from in thinking about how are fellowship programs training around procedures? Yeah, so we, what we found, um, I, we thought it was really interesting. We we're really excited to get this published in ATS Scholar um, to share this with the medical education community um, at large. But the, the real take home message is that there's pretty significant differences that we found from this survey of, of the generous program directors who were willing to complete this uh, survey study between those low risk, high volume procedures and the high risk, low volume procedures. And specifically, um, we found differences um, in terms of the educational strategies that were used and, and whether the programs and the program directors um, even had strategies for teaching these different procedures. For um, the, the low risk, high volume procedures, we found from the survey results uh, from our participants um, that the program directors, the fellowship programs used significantly more educational strategies for emphasizing those more high volume, low risk procedures. So things like arterial lines, central lines, bronchoscopy, et cetera. They had and reported more frequent use of a variety of educational techniques 
versus those high-risk, much more low-volume procedures. Again, Blakemore tubes, cricothyroidotomy, pericarditis et cetera. And so um, I think that difference in and of itself is an interesting finding that we're, we're not, as a community of educators, we're not as consistently, frequently, or intentionally teaching our trainees, our fellows, how to perform these procedures that are admittedly more low volume, but have much higher risk associated with them. And so a takeaway uh, to answer your question, Stephanie, would be, you know, is that a problem? Is that something that we should address as a community of medical educators? Should we be thinking collectively about how to develop resources to teach our fellows more consistently, more intentionally on how to perform these procedures? I think another interesting finding, if I may go on, um, is that for the high-risk, low-volume procedures, over half of our respondents, again, these are things like Blakemore tube, paracarditis cricothyroidotomy, bronchial block replacement, reported having no dedicated training uh, for those types of procedures. And again, in acknowledging limited resources, uh, that the, there's always competing, competing demands in fellowship and education, is that a problem? Should we expect, should we want our trainees to come out of fellowship being able to, or at least having been exposed to education about these procedures that I think we would all agree are a component of critical care medicine. So um, I'll pause there. There's so much more in our study. Please read it. Um, but um, the, those I think would be some of the key take home points that I'd highlight for people. Yeah, it, it, yeah I think the, the takeaway is, you know, or the question you were trying to ask is, do they have strategies? Do they at all have strategies for teaching not only the low risk, high volume procedures, but also the high risk, low volume procedures? And what, what variety of those strategies exist um, within different institutions? Um, there were some of the findings that really were surprising to me, though. You know, you you pointed out that I think you said 50, a, a majority of programs, a small majority of programs, I think it was 51%, said that they have no training for many of the high-risk, low-volume procedures. But on the flip side, if you look at it the other way, I was actually surprised that 49% of the program directors said that they do have dedicated training for these things. Um, just getting to your point of, you know, the resources that it takes to teach these rare and more complex procedures may be hard to come by, whether it's um, the, the rarity of faculty who have enough experience, who feel comfortable teaching those things, or the rarity of simulators or high fidelity simulators, perhaps, and, and people's access to those may be a little bit spotty. Um, I don't know, it, were you, so it sounds like you were surprised that actually so many people said that they didn't have access to it. And yet I was surprised that so many people said <laughs> they, they actually did do some training. Maybe it gets to the point of um, the training is very variable, right? So perhaps, you know, can you explain to us what do some of what were some of the varieties of strategies, educational strategies that um, came out uh, from what you've surveyed? Yeah, your point's very well taken. That we could look at this as a glass half full, glass half empty kind of uh, take home, and perhaps my uh, slightly more pessimistic takeaway um, uh, should be tempered in that you're more optimistic uh, approach to and response to these data. You're the um, first person who's ever called me optimistic, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. 
Um, but the point, your point is taken. You know that fifty percent or forty-nine percent of fellowship programs who who responded to our survey reported some type of teaching about high-risk, low-volume procedures. Um, your point's well taken. That that is commendable for those programs. Um, I, I might just uh, again emphasize it may be a missed opportunity for those programs that don't report any type of training for these. You know, really high stress. Um, potentially quite morbid, um, really critical procedures that are performed under scenarios of extremis. Um, you know, and again, uh, I think I'd still offer the take home, a take home from this might be uh, for programs, uh, both individually and maybe very importantly, collectively, thinking about how to develop resources to address that gap. Mm -hmm. That being said, um, your question about the variety of teaching modalities, I think is a really good one. And in, in in our survey, we did ask about how programs were teaching for fellows about both low volume, high risk procedures, as well as high volume, low risk procedures. And we saw across the board, every teaching modality that we asked about from instruction on live patient, from simulation based teaching, from online videos or modules, dedicated procedure rotations, lectures, um, et cetera, there was a significantly higher um, commitment to and frequency of reporting teaching sessions of any type for the low risk high volume procedures as compared to the high risk low volume procedures. And in general, just uh, you know, the, the numbers vary. Um, lectures, uh, thankfully, in 2020 um, were the least frequent mode of teaching procedures, um, which again, I think aligns with uh, your and my perception of, of active teaching and learning, the medical education, the uh, didactic unidirectional transfer of information, particularly for uh, psychomotor skills like procedural teaching is not particularly effective. Um, and there was an emphasis on uh, simulation-based teaching and instruction in live patients for the low-risk high-volume procedures like arterial lines, central venous catheter placement, flexible bronchoscopy, thoracentesis. And then compared to the high-risk, low-volume procedures, uh, again, things like uh, cricothyroidotomy, Blakemore tube placement, uh, uh, pericardiocentesis, and bronchial blocker placement, um, the fellowship directors still describe the same teaching uh, methods, uh, with lecture being the least frequent of the five different methods, uh, but it was significantly less frequently reported than for low-risk, high-volume procedures. As a single example, um, looking at the instruction on live patients, uh, for all of the uh, low-risk, high-volume procedures, the things that we do in critical care medicine, um, we saw that about 77% uh, of our uh, respondents said that they had some specific dedicated instruction on live patients for those procedures versus uh, just under 28% for the high-risk, low-volume procedures. So a huge gap between the frequency of teaching on live patients for these different procedures. Yeah, and that is again, probably has to do with the volume piece of it. You know, you may go through your entire fellowship without seeing some components, some, all of those rare, rarer procedures possibly. So I can imagine that there's just a lot of challenges. Absolutely. And we found it interesting that the gap was actually pretty consistent between all the different modes of teaching. So for example, for simulation-based teaching, for all of the low-risk, high-volume procedures, uh, fellowship program directors reported about 73% um, of the time that they had some simulation-based teaching for, again, A-line, central venous catheters, bronchs, et cetera, versus the high-risk, low-volume procedures, only, again, about 28 29% reported that they had some sort of simulation-based teaching, which, to echo your prior point, 
just maybe more than I would have anticipated a priori, um, but still it's a significant minority of all of the programs who participated in our study. Mm -hmm. And to your point of, you know, these procedures when they are being done in reality on real patients, it's usually under very stressful circumstances. So if you've never had the opportunity to simulate it even, um, that much more difficult to perform for the first time or when you're not being supervised or something like that. Completely agree, yes. Yeah. Um, can you say more then about supervision? Because that was something that also came out of your out of your study. Um, it sounds like you guys looked at um, the rate with which the either the low risk, high volume versus high risk, low volume procedures were being performed with or without supervision. Did any of those results sort of stand out to you? Absolutely. Yeah. So for the low risk, high volume procedures, again, just because it's a not commonly accepted term, I keep redefining it, but things like central lines, A lines, bronchoscopy, thoracentesis, um, at some point during their fellowship, fellows were allowed to perform those procedures uh, without any supervision about 20, 22% of the time. The precise number was 21.7. Um, as compared to the high risk, low volume procedures, these things like Blakemore tube placement, pericardiosynthesis, bronchial blocker placement, cricothyroidotomy, um, they were essentially never allowed to perform them without supervision, 3.9% of the time. That was a statistically significant difference between those two groups when we, when we bundled the procedures as such. Um, and it, this actually generated a fair amount of discussion amongst our author group of, you know, why? Like, why is this the case? If the fellows receive uh, infrequent, not no, but infrequent training about the high-risk, low-volume procedures, and these are procedures that need to occur usually um, acutely, immediately, in the moment, um, you know, why would the fellows uh, not be allowed to perform these uh, without having, you know, dedicated uh, supervision? Um, and it seems to make sense if you don't teach somebody how to do something um, and it's something that has a high morbidity associated with it, um, then that does make sense. But the contrast between the frequency with which regard, with, with which um, fellows were allowed, allowed to perform the low-risk high-volume procedures and the high-risk low-volume procedures did stand out to us. I had um, marked for myself that the low risk, high volume procedures, um, you all found that they were performed without supervision about around 22% of the time, which also was a surprising number to me. Um, like I would have thought that those low risk procedures would have actually been even less supervised perhaps. Um, but I, I suspect that's also probably institutional and uh, you know dependent on, on the maybe what the prior training of the fellows are coming in, for example. For sure. And the, I, I will say that the low risk, high volume procedures, the, the percentage by which uh, fellows were allowed to perform those when we bundled all four of those procedures together was really driven down by bronchoscopy. So mm -hmm. um, we found that bronchoscopy of those four procedures, again, sorry to be redundant, A-lines, central lines, thoracentesis, and bronchoscopy, uh, bronchoscopy um, was the one procedure that programs reported having a high degree of or expectation for faculty supervision. So if bronchoscopy had not been included in that group, which again, we felt it was appropriate to include because fellows do so many bronchoscopies, um, but if it had not been included, that number, that percent of, of um, you know, for which fellows would have been allowed to perform perform the procedures independently would have gone up significantly. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. And I found it, you you all uh, had 
0% of fellows being uh, permitted to perform flexible bronchoscopy without supervision. So that was pretty stark as well. I thought that that was, and that makes sense if that was bundled together with the rest of the low risk high volume procedures that that would have been what probably pushed that number down. Cause it, maybe I would imagine that most of the fellows are performing all the various lines and maybe even some plural procedures independently. But then if they had to have supervision for all the bronchoscopies, that makes sense. Yeah, and your point, your prior point about uh, you know dividing bronchoscopy between intubated patients versus non-intubated patients, that may have uh, helped us have more nuanced and um, detailed information about the degree of supervision. Because um, as an attending, you know, in the ICU, I'm 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 quite comfortable having my fellows bronch somebody uh, who's intubated. Um, I will be there for it. I'm supposed to be, um, but um, I'm not nervous about it. Like it's it's quite easy just to pull the bronchoscope out if if things are going wrong and let the patient uh, reequilibrate. Versus an unintubated patient, I'm going to be there uh, for the procedure. And um, so I think that your prior point about that uh, differentiation um, is very well taken in this context. Can you talk a little bit about? Um, you asked the uh, program directors about their confidence in their fellow's competence uh, in performing these two types of buckets of procedures. Um, how would you frame what you found? Yes, yeah, so this was maybe my favorite um, result from the entire study um, in terms of because perceived confidence, you know, and perceptions of, of how well we're doing what we're doing, I think is um, a window into, um, you know, into the processes and, and the outcomes that our medical educators, our excellent program directors who participated in the study, um, are telling us about, about what we're doing uh, for our fellows. And so we just asked a simple question. It was a five-point liquor scale uh, with one indicating high confidence um, that the fellows had been adequately trained for procedures and five indicating a significant lack of confidence or low confidence. Um, and what we found for the low risk, high volume procedures, uh, so things again, central lines, bronchoscopies, et cetera, the program directors were quite confident. So the, the number was that we got from them was uh, 1.3 um, with a tight standard deviation of about 0.8. So uh, everybody was clustered on the left side of the liquor scale uh, towards the highly confident side of things. Uh, versus 3.5 for the high-risk, low-volume procedures. Again, pericarditis cricothyroidotomy, et cetera. Um, that was a very statistically significant difference uh, with a P of less than 0.001. Um, and, and I think folks speak to um, what we see from the results in terms of the frequency with which fellows are allowed to or taught about these procedures. Uh, the type of educational intervention fellows receive for these different procedures um, and the real stark difference between uh, what's being offered and, and what is available for fellows in terms of teaching these procedures. Um, and I think just once more, it, it underscores this gap uh, between the low risk high volume and the high risk low volume procedures and an opportunity to again, individually as programs, collectively across different uh, pulmonary and or critical care programs, um, you know, and or with resources from professional organizations like the American Thoracic Society to bridge that gap. You know, the question is, do we want our trainees, our fellows to come out of their critical care fellowship programs able to do, or at least competent in performing Blakemore tube placement, bronchial blocker placement, pericardiocentesis, and or cricothyroidotomy 
I think the answer, like if you just surveyed, uh, uh, you know, 100 pulmonary critical care medicine physicians would be yes, um, but we're not getting there yet based on these survey data and figuring out a way to bridge that gap to bring those confidences uh, more in alignment, I think is an important takeaway from this study. Yeah, so what I take away from that is for the low risk, high volume procedures, program directors are confident that their fellows will be competent, at least yeah. at the conclusion of their training and performing those procedures. However, with the high risk, low volume procedures, there's much more heterogeneity in, in sort of the response, in the, in the confidence of the fellow's competence. Because the number ended up as like 3.5 in the Likert scale. So I'd, with, a, like you said, a wide confidence interval. So it seems that some program directors may be thinking that their fellows actually are fairly well trained or are going to come out pretty confident and competent, but others not so. Am I interpreting that correctly? Absolutely, yeah. So the, the confidence intervals for the high-risk, low-volume procedures uh, was 1.2. So the, it, the span, if we look at that, um, uh, you know, on the five-point uh, Likert scale was from basically 2.3 all the way to 4.7, uh, just causing fudging the numbers a little bit. Um, and so it's a, it's a relatively wide span, but it's still definitely right-shifted uh, towards lack of confidence as compared to those more uh, frequent procedures uh, that we perform in critical care medicine and that our fellows are taught about in these different programs. Um, it's, it's really a, a stark difference between the low-risk high volume and the high-risk low volumes in terms of what we do with regard to teaching our, our trainees and how confident our expert program directors feel uh, about our fellows being able to perform those procedures at the end of fellowship. So basically nobody is comfortable. <laughs> yeah, Nobody's exactly. comfortable with Although, how this is going. To your point, we have not asked fellows if they feel yeah. that they're comfortable or, or, or not. So, um, you know, further research is needed to look at the training side of things, the learner side of things. Yeah. So say a little bit about what the group um, posits as the challenges to teaching these high risk, low volume procedures. What's the problem? Why isn't this happening more routinely? For sure. Uh, that's a great question. And as I um, intimated earlier, I think, you know, in everywhere in life, we have uh, limited bandwidth, limited resources and competing obligations. And I'm 100% I'm sure that's what's manifesting in, in our pulmonary and or critical care fellowship programs where we have um, you know, program directors um, have a limited amount of time uh, to provide focused training for their fellows, uh, be that about you know, cognitive uh, knowledge-based uh, considerations um, um, and or procedural teaching, um, and then limited resources. You had mentioned previously uh, the concept of uh, simulators, and we most programs uh, in the United States uh, where this study took place um, have task trainers for central line placement, uh, for sure. They may have uh, bronchoscopy task trainers as well, either uh, you know, simulated virtual task trainers uh, using one's mobile phone and an app or actual task trainers using a mannequin um, you know, and a bronchoscope. But task trainers for Blakemore tube placement or for pericardiocentesis, um, maybe less so for cricothyroidotomy, um, are necessarily and, and obviously less available. And so I think that, and, and they're more resource intensive. So to purchase a task trainer to perform, or practice performing pericardiosynthesis um, is, is not a, a negligible investment for a fellowship program that may have limited monetary resources and have to decide how to distribute its funds. So I think all of those things come into play. 
One other consideration that we did discuss as an author group uh, and came through a little bit in the discussion portion of the paper um, is the idea of, of faculty comfort with procedures. And so if in pulmonary and critical care medicine in tertiary or quaternary uh, care medical centers, we have faculty who don't really routinely perform pericardiocentesis because we've got you know, immediately available excellent cardiology colleagues who come in and do that for us, you know, we may not be comfortable teaching that to fellows. And so this kind of creates a scenario where these high risk, very low volume procedures simply can't be or aren't being taught with the current resources available. So I think addressing those issues in terms of thinking about bandwidth, you know, how do we find time in the fellow's curricula to include these procedures as part of their education? resources, um, you know, are there tools that can be made available for fellowship programs to teach things like bronchial block replacement and or pericardiocentesis, et cetera. Um, and then, you know, maybe faculty development in terms of intentionally and really dedicatedly trying to bring faculty who are clinically focused and, and interested in this, um, you know, up to speed with regard to performing and obviously potentially teaching these procedures. Those are very broad potential takeaways, but I think it's, a, it's at least the start of a conversation about how we can bridge this gap between low-risk, high-volume procedures and high-risk, low-volume procedures if we want to as a community of critical care medicine educators. So to, to make it personal, how do you teach high-risk, low-volume procedures? So I appreciate the personal question. I'll admit I did not take the survey uh, as a co-author <laughs> on the study. Um, so my results are not included in that. Um, I'm also not a fellowship program director. So, um, you know, my uh, my reach is uh, more limited uh, than our program directors who were generous enough to participate in the survey. Um, but I will say, you know, as a faculty at a tertiary care medical center, I, I don't do pericardiocentesis. Um, you know, our interventional pulmonary uh, staff does bronchial block replacement. Um, yeah, I've done one cricothyroidotomy in my life, um, and uh, that was under emergent circumstances. Um, you know, and um, our GI faculty, we have a very like heavy uh, liver population here. Uh, our GI faculty and fellows do our Blakemore tube placements, usually like two to three a year. So honestly, like I'm maybe to uh, rephrase your question, I'm maybe part of the problem in terms of not teaching our fellows about high risk, low volume procedures uh, in our critical care practice. But I think that talking about you know, how to make that happen in a more systematic way as part of fellowship training, um, I think is important. Um, and I'd, I'd love to help to participate in that moving forward. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think your, your point is that it, that's how challenging it is, right? That even in a place that has tremendous resources um, and a huge focus on education, it's still difficult to, to get this training um, to our fellows. And we can't anticipate where our fellows are going to go following their training and what uh, broad exposure they may need to step into a new position with. Because um, certainly we have folks who, yeah, train at this, uh, Academic, large academic medical center with every single subspecialty at their fingertips. Um, and you allude even to the impact of an interventional pulmonary program, how that may be both a, a boon and a downside for fellows. Perhaps they it provides them with uh, uh, faculty who may be able to teach them some of these 
rarer, more complex procedures like bronchial blockers and maybe some more advanced airway things. Maybe they're the right people to teach cricothyroidotomy. But at the same time, maybe the IP fellows may be taking away some of those opportunities from the conventional pulmonary fellows. But at the end of the day, some of these fellows are going to go on to more of a general practice elsewhere where they may not have those resources at their fingertips. Um, and we can't really predict. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. And uh, just um, methodologically, we did ask the participants, uh, the respondents uh, for our survey study, if their institution had an interventional pulmonology program. Um, and um, we did acknowledge that that's a limitation um, in our findings that that could affect the variability um, of the frequency with which fellows were trained on or allowed to participate in things from, you know, everything from thoracentesis to bronchial blocker placement. That being said, I, I really emphasize the astute and important point that you made, Stephanie, about um, we don't know where our fellows are going after they graduate. And I think that we as educators have an obligation to provide them as broad training for clinical practice in addition to the research and education and scholarly uh, opportunities that we provide them, but for clinical practice so that they can be as competent practitioners as possible wherever they end up. Yeah, I share that same value set with you. Um, is there, in your preparation for writing this manuscript, did you come across any similar data from other specialties like emergency medicine, for example, that have to also be responsible for high risk, low volume emergency procedures on their own sometimes? Like, does this exist? This, has this question been asked elsewhere? Yeah, so again, we, we didn't find this differentiation between high risk, low volume and low risk, high volume procedures, um, acknowledging with a focus on critical care medicine um, out there in the literature. And so I think, um, again, like, I, I hope like a useful takeaway from the study is that differentiation. As you said earlier um, and astutely, um, not all procedures are created equal. And so starting to stratify uh, the different procedures into different categories, I, I think it will have value for us as a community of educators um, and, and as researchers moving forward. I hope so. Yeah. Um, in terms of looking at um, other specialties, we really didn't find much um, in terms of a description of um, doing these kind of high stakes, uh, low volume, low frequency procedures um, as compared to more common procedures. There's certainly a, a pretty rich literature in, in emergency medicine uh, in the surgical literature um, about performing or training for um, rare procedures or low frequency, low volume procedures. Um, but that comparison between low risk, high volume, high risk, low volume uh, was not something we found out there. Mm -hmm. um, so it sounds like there's a lot of opportunity for improvement and innovation um, on our end as educators. What, you know, what ideas started to come out of these conversations um, as a group of educators or did you hear from program directors as a follow-up to the survey um what would you envision like what is possible yes yeah, so that's another great question uh thank you for asking that um we we did not follow up with the program directors after the survey to kind of ask them about um potential solutions for this um that could be a next step in terms of um, acting on the data that we found from this descriptive survey study. Um, that being said, um, in our discussion section and in our conversations amongst the author group, 
Um, you know, we, we readily acknowledge that the issues of bandwidth, resources, finances, and competing obligations is a real challenge to introducing and really optimally training these kind of niche but really important procedures uh, for pulmonary and critical care fellows. Um, and so, as I kind of referenced before, the idea of collaboration across fellowship programs and or resources from professional societies like the American Thoracic Society, um, you could be ways to, to bridge that gap. In an individual fellowship program, you may not have the resources or the ability to buy a task trainer for performing pericardiocentesis and, and investing in in-depth in faculty development to bring their, their attendings, their faculty, up to speed on that procedure. But if there are shared resources, um, if there are things that are accessible um, you know, online or virtually um, through, again, either a consortium of fellowship programs or the American Thoracic Society or other professional organizations, that could be a resource to try to raise the bar with regard to what we're doing as faculty and how we're training our fellows. Um, again, that's that's a, that's a step beyond what our data showed us from the survey. Um, that's the, us kind of extrapolating as authors and thinking about as medical educators how to address this issue. But um, I think things like that may be a way to, to deal with these. Again, low volume but high risk procedures that we want to train our uh, trainees on, but maybe can't invest in as an individual program. Thanks so much for explaining all of this to me and to our listeners and for um, for this really interesting study that I think um, raises a lot of like new and interesting questions about how we can better train our fellows and think sort of innovatively and collectively um, to do some new things. I want to just ask you a, a fun question. So uh, we are coming up on, uh, we're, we're recording this during uh, right about the time that ATS would be happening in 2021. And we are unfortunately not able to all gather together for ATS this year due to the pandemic. Um, so what do you, what will you most miss about not gathering with all the crowds of people during regular ATS? And what are you looking forward to for next year? I did not expect that fun question. Thank you for asking it. I will say I definitely uh, am missing not being able to go to the international conference this year. And the thing that I most miss is is just seeing, catching up with, uh, and interacting with all of the wonderful people out there um, across the country, across the world, uh, who are part of our ATS community. And so not being able to see you in person and see how you're doing and catching up, Stephanie, not being able to see um, you know, some of the extremely generous people who responded to our survey, not being able to see our collaborators uh, in this author group uh, who are from across the country and not being able to see some of our uh, international colleagues uh, from all over the world. All of those things, you know, that connection, that human connection, uh, something that uh, SARS-CoV-2 has definitely taken away from us. And hopefully, hopefully, uh, ATS 2022 will come back in San Francisco and we'll be able to get together, interact with each other, learn from each other uh, in person with real human contact again. I agree. That's a good uh, thing to look forward to for next year. Um, great. Well, thank you again so much, Dr. Richards, for, for uh, giving us your thoughts and your expertise. Uh, we always look forward to, to hearing about the interesting uh, educational strategies uh, that you're working on. Uh, and your collaborators are working on and uh, things that we can uh, do together as a community.
Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. Uh, Dr. Maximus, it's great to be here with you. Um, and if anybody who's out there listening to this has questions about our study, please take a look at it um, on, in, online. It's open access on ATS Scholar. And if you want further clarification or have questions about any aspect of it, please don't hesitate to shoot me an email. My email address is uh, there with the author affiliations at the uh, top of the manuscript. And thank you all for listening to this week's episode of Scholarly. If you like this episode, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. To listen to more episodes and see show notes from today's discussion, you can visit our webpage at atsjournals.org backslash scholarly. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.